Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to News Talk's Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Coming up on today's programme, as house prices continue to rise and with inflation going through the roof, we'll talk to the Construction Industry Federation Chief Tom Parlin about the issues his members want this government to address so that they can get back to building at scale. Philanthropy in Ireland, we look at the types of things that Irish corporates and benefactors are looking to get involved in in 2022. And finally, the aviation industry, grounded for another year or set to take off again, we'll hear from the global leasing giant Avalon about their views for the year ahead. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. First up today, I'm joined by Tom Parlin, who's Director General of the Construction Industry Federation. Tom, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Mandy. Tom, uh, when I went back looking looking you up there, I realised that it's 20 years since you were elected to the Dáil. The landscape has certainly changed quite radically. But if you look at when you joined the Construction Industry Federation, that was 2007. Again, another very different landscape. So could you just kind of give me a sense of where things at in construction in Ireland today? Maybe not how that compares to where it was 2007 because it's not a right comparison, but like the challenges, they're certainly acute, aren't they? They are. And I suppose some of the things, like when I joined uh, the Construction Industry Federation, as you said, in 2007, property prices were at their peak. They had been rising for years and years. And uh, likewise, uh, house building output, like we were building close on 90,000 houses a year. I saw those figures. Um, I couldn't quite believe it. So immediately I joined... Uh, property prices started to drop and clearly house building started to drop as well. And look, there's no point in rehearsing that, but, you know, there was too much uh, money lent uh, into speculation and all the terrible things that happened. Uh, so they all happened within the Construction Industry Federation. My few year, first few years there were quite difficult. Uh, our subs and our income as an organisation and an entity uh, uh, was very badly affected. We had to lay off a lot of very good people and uh, cut our cloth according to our measure. But if you compare then with now, like this year, and the final figures are not out, but we will have built about 20,000 houses, maybe 21,000 houses, as opposed to the 90,000 then. Uh, We currently have about 147,000 people working in construction. Uh, There was an extra 100,000 then. Um, And uh, property prices now are, you know, on the increase as well. We, I saw something lately that we won't be far off the peak uh, back in 2007 shortly and that's largely because there's a scarce a scarcity of property now um, our population has grown very substantially since then and uh, we've had all the different issues about house building and so on and quite a crisis now with regard to uh, uh, housing supply Yeah, I'll get into that in, in a moment I might just stick with the Federation from uh, a second because very often people don't realise that these federations are run by the members and their 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 they're financed by the members also. So how is your membership now? Like, has it grown over the years? Are there people coming into construction in Ireland? Do you see people leaving? How has the pandemic affected? Well, we're in a pretty good place now, but clearly we took a major uh, dip. A lot of our members went out of business. I think five of our top 10 uh, turnover 
companies uh, disappeared. Wow. Uh, so it wasn't just a smaller one. It, everybody was affected. Uh, but this Construction Industry Federation is a federation of a number of different associations. And they're all quite, while they all come under the construction umbrella, they're all quite different. Uh, we say we have our house builders who are currently the people that are building the houses at the moment. And they can be an individual family firm that's building, you know, four or five houses a year, or it can be a big uh, uh, publicly listed company that's building uh, well in excess of a thousand houses per year. We have our main contractors who would be, uh, you know, doing the big office blocks around the city and, and, and hotels and commercial building. We have civil engineering contractors, separate group, uh, who do the motorways and the roads and do the water infrastructure and so on. Uh, and probably our biggest group of all now is our mechanical and electrical contractors. Uh, you know, they're amongst our uh, three of them, I think, are in our top 10 turnover. Uh, they're the companies that are fitting out the uh, data centers, fitting out the um, uh, the big IT companies, uh, fitting out the med tech and, uh, and all the pharma plants. Uh, they've grown massively in Ireland because of the very, very strong FDI, but they've grown massively, massively internationally as well. And, you know, I'd say there's 10 of our big companies that are very big players right across the continent. So we've seen a huge diversification of the construction industry in itself. What new challenges do you feel um, are here now that maybe didn't present you when you came in? Well, I suppose one thing, like when I came in, the biggest sell of construction and getting extra construction activity uh, was the labour and the fact that we were given employment. Now there's a major scarcity of labour. Uh, we had a survey done just uh, last weekend, uh, published last weekend, and uh, one of the biggest concerns that our members have currently is access to skilled labour. Uh, so that, that certainly is a challenge. Uh, and previously, I suppose, inflation in building materials wasn't an issue. It was pretty stable. Uh, since um, uh, COVID, since we were you know, locked down here, uh, there's been major supply chain issues and a global phenomenon. Steel, in particular, and timber and plastics have you know, doubled in price. Uh, so that's a big concern, concern for somebody wanting to do an extension to their house. It's a concern for someone to buy a new house, but it's a concern for our members as well because they, they were never faced when they were tendering before for a project that mightn't begin construction for maybe six months or 12 months even if it's a public sector contract. And now they could find that their prices have gone up 20% in between. So I suppose access to labour and um, uh, material inflation are two big ones that we didn't have before. Now, all those issues mean that many residential and commercial projects have become economically uh, un untenable to build. What measures um, and initiatives would the uh, CIF like to see um, the government take to reduce the impact of all of this uh, price inflation, wage uh, inflation and skill shortage? What are the key measures that the government could take for your industry now to actually help you get up and moving quicker? Yeah, well, I suppose the important, when you put it in perspective, house building clearly is, you know, one that the public are very concerned of. And it's one that, you know, that so uh, keeping getting our house. But, but the actual cost of building a house is less than half the overall cost. So that's the actual builders uh, material, all the input, the sand and gravel, uh, the digging out the foundation, the blocks, the roof, uh, the, the internal fit out. Uh, all of that, that's less than half of the overall cost. So the other half is made up of the site cost, which is a factor largely outside 
uh, builders control and then there's all the regulation and there's the VAT and uh, there's uh, the cost of utilities and all of that like uh, every house that's built now uh, the developer whether or the individual has to pay 6,000 upfront for a water connection that's at the at the at the very early stage long before he puts a shovel in the ground uh, so you know some of those impediments are are big but I and suppose is, is that is that stymieing investment towards Ireland it do you surely think? is of course it is and it's not just if you pay your 6k that you immediately get your connection there are major deficits in terms of water infrastructure and and some of the other utility players are not too far behind but I suppose one thing that we are embracing now and in fairness uh, with very strong support from government we have set up like construction I previously was in agriculture and agriculture had has and had a minister and a couple of junior agriculture ministers and a department of agriculture advisory service research all of that construction even a substantially bigger industry now with more people employed and you know value this year I see a projected figure of thirty three billion this year construction output would be so we now have a construction um, uh, a construction sector sector group CSG. And it's chaired by the Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure and all the major key stakeholders are on, including ourselves, the CIF, and all of the other big government agencies. So we made good progress there in terms of, big thing is about encouraging people to join the industry. And secondly, setting up a centre of excellence and encouraging uh, the, the the digital technology to be applied to construction. So any anywhere technology applies, it generally reduces costs. So already the industry is embracing that what's called um, uh, modern construction methods. And this is largely, instead of doing everything on site, there's a large element of any build now is built off site. You have special factories that are building timber frame kits, that are building pods, that are doing precast uh, and so on. So um, and, and using the most uh, um, BIM uh, building information uh, method. Uh, so it's the modern technology that's three dimensional and so on. So I suppose it's investment and embracing technology and trying to make the industry as efficient as possible. But the regulatory and planning issues are constantly um, uh, raising their head. Uh, there are three government strategies now, the Housing for All, the National Development Plan and the National Retrofit Scheme. scheme. Um, they're obviously going to provide uh, billions for euros for your industry, but what good is it if they're all clogged up in the system constantly? How relevant is that to uh, our problems at the moment? Yeah, it certainly is a big factor. And you, you, you did say like the construction industry is in a good place in that it looks like there could be a decade of work ahead for the industry. Previously, we've been up and down. We've been employing 200,000 one year and then we're back to 100,000. And that's certainly when we had the last sort of recession. Uh, certainly a lot of parents and a lot of people that lost their jobs in construction that were halfway through their apprenticeship and so on, got very disillusioned with construction. They had to go abroad and so on. Uh, so now it's a bit of a challenge. So, but I think the fact that that certainty is there is good. But you're dead right about the the um, the delays attached and the uncertainty attached to planning. Uh, we know there's a commitment from government now that the Attorney General is uh, undertaking a major review and reform of planning. And uh, that's actually active at the moment. Uh, where We have a special group feeding into it uh, but it is a big challenge for the government. And while on the one hand, a lot of the, uh, the the clauses within planning is to make sure that an individual citizen has a right to object and so on. That, I think, has been grossly abused. We have uh, judicial reviews now 
that's holding up, you know, massive developments around the country. And when you do make a planning application now, first thing you can be sure that somebody is going to appeal it to Board Planola uh, if it gets through the, the, the local authority. And secondly, that somebody is going to very likely take a judicial review. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, could be a two year time frame, which is ridiculous. And when all these costs are, these judicial reviews are being taken, Tom, who bears the cost of them? Well, that's the, you don't have to make any, there's no, the people that are ejecting have no skin in the game. Um, you know, I've seen cases where when it was put to the to the judge, uh, you know, and they said they were concerned about this particular development, but they didn't have the resources. And the judge said, don't you worry your little head about resources. Uh, we let this case go through. Uh, so I hope that's part of the review. Uh, there are vexatious objectors, and I'm not saying that all objectors are vexatious, but there are object, vexatious objectors. Uh, I was on a particular development this week, and uh, there's an objection into an extension. It has nothing got to do with the locality or the actual extension. It's a grievance uh, that this particular individual has uh, uh, against the company, and that hadn't been resolved, but nothing to do with the planning. But he's using his, his, uh, his ability to be able to hold it up you know, as a, as a ploy. Tom, I'll just take you back there for a second um, about what we lost uh, during the COVID crisis in terms of house building. You know, we've obviously lost a lot of companies. Um, we've lost, uh, somebody had estimated 800 houses per week were lost during the, the pandemic. How, how long is it going to take us to catch up and get back to where we were uh, in 2020? Well, I suppose it's a good thing, like I said to you about the survey that we did lately, like in that survey, uh, I think 50% of our members said in quarter three last year that they had uh, more turnover than they had in quarter three the year before. So despite the fact that we lost from early January to well into May, um, when we did get started, there was massive resilience, massive enthusiasm. The sites showed themselves to be entirely safe places, no problem getting workers in. And I suppose the challenge was to get materials at the outset, but we have made a massive recovery. Um, and, you know, the bulk of our, the, the majority of our firms would look favourably on this year, on 22, as being, you know, a good year. Uh, I was at an event this morning, ACOM, uh, one of the big global consultancy firms that have a, a presence here, you know, are saying that the value of construction output is going to grow from, I think, 29 billion in 2019 to 33 billion this year. So, you know, the, the, the certainly great resilience. And while we have challenges with regard to labor and so on, if we have the certainty here, a lot of our people that left, you know, uh, both in the recession and when we were closed down for COVID will come back. And we had a big campaign on both online and in the airports over Christmas, encouraging people that were coming home for Christmas to think about staying home. We've heard this week and indeed from um, Morgan McKinley last week about wages um, and the wage increases that are being felt right across the sector. Um, inflation, 5.5% this week. Uh, how on earth do you try to kind of grapple with um, the skills shortage in that environment? Well, I suppose the priority for most of our members now will be keeping the people to have. And uh, I was at some event lately and the uh, guy that was given the presentation said, if you have valued uh, employees uh, that are very well skilled, you can be sure at the moment there's somebody else looking for them. So I think it's important to, to acknowledge the value and the people that you have and to engage with them and make sure that you're going to hold on to them. Because invariably, uh, there's quite a, a, a churn now of people. And if you're to give up your job, 
and look for a new one, chances are you'll be looking for 20% extra. Mm-hmm. Um, now, how long that's going to last, I don't know. Certainly, you know, COVID has created a massive, uh, 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 a lot of activity, particularly mm-hmm. in constru- construction, but right across the board. You've seen our exchequer returns broke all records mm-hmm. and broke all forecasts and so on. Uh, so good people are certainly scarce. Uh, skilled people are scarce. And, um, you know, we we bring in a lot of people while a lot of Irish people work all over the world in construction and otherwise, an awful lot of foreign people come here to work in our construction industry. We have a bit of a challenge at the moment. Uh, you can work if you if you're sourcing people within the European Union, they can come here and work immediately. If you're attempting to source people outside, they have to have a work permit. And there's quite a substantial uh, backlog. I think there's ten thousand uh, applicants for work permits held up in the in the migration office at the moment. Uh, there's a commitment that that's going to improve and new staff going in there, but we need to be able to get those people into the industry very quickly now. Just turning to another part of the industry, the regulation of providers for building works 2021 requires builders to sign up to a statutory register. However, the registration won't be compulsory for two years. What's your thoughts on that? Well, look, we introduced the the voluntary register back in 2014. Mm-hmm. It's called the Construction Industry Register of Ireland, which interestingly is the one that the government uh, want to set up now. We sought since then to have it put on a statutory basis. Um, so we, we welcome the fact that it's begun uh, its journey through the houses of the Oireachtas. Uh, it's about sort of giving comfort to any customer, be it yourself if you were doing an extension or to a big corporation or to uh, a department of health or whatever, that the contractor that they engage, that they will be competent, that they'll have all the technical capability, that they'll be aware of the regulatory and statutory issues, that they um, will be tax compliant, that they'll be health and safety compliant, that they'll be insured, VAD registered, all of that. So there's a quite a high bar set. Uh, and unless you tick all the boxes, uh, you won't be on the register. And by making it statutory, it means that you won't be able to uh, tender for a private or a public tender unless you're on the register. Tom, we spoke at the outset about the figures that um, were delivered in housing in in, uh, 2002. What would your outlook be for 2022? What do you think the house building capacity in Ireland is for that year? Well, I've seen, like, there's a lot of statistics and a lot of figures. Um, the, The commencements are very good. Like, the amount of buildings that were begun last year that hopefully would finish this year. Now, some apartment blocks can take more than 12 months uh, to complete if you're doing a big apartment complex. Uh, but most of the housing complexes uh, uh, are once off and they can be done, certainly. Like, we can actually build a house sort of between 14 and 16 weeks from the time you move on site to somebody being ready to move in. Between 14 and 16 weeks? Yeah. Wow. But generally, from the time you... How would, long does that process to get to that Exactly, that's where like, it could be two years. Yeah. By the time you get through planning and get through all the other stuff, uh, you could be two years. Um, so I'd be confident that we, you know, the target of the of the government is that we build 35,000 houses a year. I don't think we'll meet 35,000, but uh, I think we'll make a big dent in heading for 30,000 units. And that's private, that's uh, public, that's apartment blocks and so on. Uh, and that's the likes of the big uh, international investors that are investing in big units and so on. Like certainly they're 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 a key factor, and the government's commitment as well to do the social housing and others. So I think the industry won't be found wanting. Uh, I think if if that commitment is there, if the water connections are there, if the utility connections are there, and all of that, that will make a big gap in the thirty thousand. Tom, I just want to ask you one more question, um, before I let you go. Um, at the Land Development Agency, Rockdale Hearing Committee today, 
Ono Bryn mentioned that there were 80,000 units sitting in the system which already had planning permission. What's your take on that? Well, obviously, just getting planning permission, you know, while you can't build without planning permission, uh, the other big criteria is viability. And it depends on where they are and depends on, you know, a lot of other factors and so on. So uh, certainly that, uh, you know, the, his figure is right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, but it wouldn't paint the picture. I'd say if you look at every one of them, uh, there are some viability issues that are holding up uh, things or maybe even to finance. Like we, as I mentioned, we do depend on some of the big international investors to come in there because they have ready cash. They might if, not be available anymore. If you're, yeah. uh, if you're, and even with, Government departments, despite the massive commitment to housing for all and so on, by the time all that funding filters down to the housing agency and eventually to go out to tender, it can take quite a while as well. So, um, you know, uh, we need more land zoned and we need more planning permissions and a quicker planning system. Tom, it's the biggest social and political issue of our time, arguably. Um, do you think that the government are doing, going in the right direction even to start making a a kind of positive trajectory on yeah, these well, figures? Look, in fairness to the government, they've made it the number one uh, sort of political issue and I think all all the different uh, um, surveys and, and polls and show, so on would show that that is the case. They've provided the money, um, but, you know, as I'll say, the need to look at the, the, the next issues, the need to sort out the planning, the need to sort out the, the government, public procurement is certainly archaic here and is holding up a lot of stuff. Uh, and likewise, I said, the utilities. So if uh, if to keep going in the right direction, providing the money is awfully important. Like you're going nowhere without having the money. But then you need to move along and say, wh- what's the next uh, uh, roadblock that is going to be there? And like I said, uh, we're probably not going to have the planning report for at least 12 months. Uh, but, you know, it can come quick enough. Indeed, um, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to come in to us today and sharing your insights with us. That's Tom Parland, Director General of the Construction Industry Federation of Ireland. Now you're welcome back to the programme. Ireland has historically benefited from many great philanthropists over the years. Our universities and schools have worked with corporate and private donors to deliver real and positive change in policies ranging from equality to combating violence against women to tackling climate action. But what is modern philanthropy and what is it like here in Ireland? How do we compare internationally? I've heard in dispatches that the government is planning to address this issue with a new national policy on philanthropy and to discuss all of this I'm joined now by Denise Charlton who's Chief Executive of the Community Foundation of Ireland which has for over 22 years been pushing the boundaries on philanthropy and last year alone with corporate and private donors provided almost 19 million in grants to communities. Denise you're very welcome to Newstock. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Delighted to be here. Just firstly, for those who do not know, can you tell us what uh, philanthropy is and what the Community Foundation for Ireland is and what you do? So philanthropy is really purposeful giving uh, in short. Um, And Community Foundation for Ireland is a proven model of philanthropy. So we are part of uh, 1,800 community foundations globally and community foundations have been around for 100 years. They're geographically focused 
So an example would be um, Silicon Valley Community Foundation supported by tech industry. You might have it focused on a city like London Community Foundation or on a country like ourselves or or Scotland. Um, I suppose our USP, our uniqueness is around our connectivity to the voluntary community sector. We work with about 5,000 voluntary community and charitable organisations. And really what happens is that donors come to us, uh, whether they're individuals, families, corporates or trusts and foundations and they have a desire for purposeful giving. They want to give some money, they want to invest and the reason they come to us is for lots of reasons but one of the most pertinent reasons I think is that we know where there's need. We know what the social issues are, we know what is causing, I suppose, problems in communities. And so we're able to direct their investment in that way through a whole range of mechanisms. And Denise, has COVID um, changed everything for philanthropy? How how have things been affected during the pandemic? Yeah, so what we've seen is a real step up for philanthropists. So those who were giving were giving more. Um, Those who hadn't started giving started to give. Um, So an example would be that we gave out 8 million pre-COVID. And as you said, we gave out 19 million um, last year. And so we've seen real generosity and that's been replicated nationally and globally. But I guess the catalyst for that is very important. So what people have seen and those that can give is that the demand is just huge. So where there were inequalities, they've been exasperated, as everybody knows. So we saw people thinking about the fact that food poverty has increased in Ireland, that if you're living in domestic violence, you're locked in your own home, that mental health for young people um, is on the increase. There might be no services uh, in rural Ireland or locally. So you could see people who wanted to give really thinking about those inequalities, um, vulnerable families falling out of the system and stepping up to the plate. And that's just been fantastic for us. Um, but as we say, the demand always um, outstrips what we're able to provide with our donors. So we hope that that growth will continue. And is there a particular area that corporate investors are interested in at the moment in terms of philanthropy? Yeah, I mean, I'll give you some examples of the corporate partnerships we have and that kind of paints the picture. So it goes from kind of a community fund, which would be Energia, who really is looking at you know, local communities that are neighbouring their clean um, energy sites. Uh, One in South Donegal would have uh, given grants to uh, kids who are accessing third level education or community initiatives. Um, Another type of corporate relationship would be Bank of Ireland. Uh, Begin Together is there and that's really around physical, um, uh, mental and uh, financial well-being uh, for local communities. It's really around resilience and recovery in COVID. Um, We also then have another relationship with SNBC Aviation. They would have gone totally local. They would have done an expression of interest with local community organisations and funded Belvedere to develop um, a restorative justice groundbreaking approach. Um, And that's been just a a, a fantastic um, partnership. And really, I suppose, how we work with those corporates is whatever your interest is, um, and it might be environment, it might be, you know, local, it might be um, a specific social issue. We support those corporates in devising their strategy and then we support them to give out the money uh, we mine the money and then we monitor where the money goes. Um, but very often they're coming and we just actually did a piece of research with our corporates to ask them what was helpful 
um, and they would say really knowing where the need is, knowing where we can resolve social issues, knowing where we can work with local partners on the ground. That's what Community Foundation uh, brings to them. So could this type of donation help a company if they were factoring in ESG into their balance sheets? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, ESG has become so important now in in businesses and uh, such a big contributing factor. So corporates are thinking about that framework all the time, you know, how they're engaging their stakeholders, how they're investing locally. So, yeah, it's an absolute framework that we would have um, to the core of our, our relationships with corporates. So if I was a corporate now thinking about contributing to some cause, why would I consider um, Community Foundation for Ireland? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think there's probably three reasons. We would call it the head and the heart. And so the head, first of all, is that we have a cost effective um, vehicle for charitable funds. And so what that means really is when corporates are thinking about investing, we do the due diligence, we do the governance um, and we do the grant making. We give them independence, we give them a little bit of distance. Um, So that's really important in terms of the kind of headpiece. The heart piece then is where the money goes and that connectivity to the voluntary community sector. And so, as I said, whatever their interest is, we can devise the strategy for giving and then we have the mechanism to support that. We're a grant maker for over 20 years. And so what that means is we can design a criteria for grant making. Again, that's open and transparent. And that allows you to put a call out uh, to groups on the ground or can be done in a a closed way as well. So you work with the companies to reach directly into specific communities if that's where they want to go. Exactly. And design the criteria around that. And then I'd say the third thing is impact. We really, really think about impact for them and how their money will make a difference. Well, if you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Denise Charlton, Chief Executive of the Community Foundation of Ireland. Now, Denise, from what you said there, it appears that philanthropy in this country um, is actually quite healthy. Is that somewhat counterintuitive, given everything that we've gone through? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Philanthropists, as I said, have really stepped up to the plate, but internationally... Um, we we don't compare. So if you take a, a country like New Zealand that has the same type of population, rural urban divide, um, we we are much more underdeveloped than they are. So, so in a negative sense, yeah. So for example, the level of gift. So if you take five thousand donation, they have thirty percent of their giving that is over five thousand. It's two percent here. Um, so like comparatively across Europe, we're very underdeveloped. But I think what the pandemic has shown is that there is huge interest in philanthropy in Ireland and that it really can be part of the recovery, that there's a real chance for public and private um, collaboration to make a difference in the country. But we have to encourage people, you know, we have to show them what philanthropy can do and they have to see themselves in it. Um, and that allows them to step up to the plate. And it's very exciting what philanthropy can do. Um, Um, So we're very underdeveloped. So that's a challenge, but it's also an amazing opportunity. It is. um, And you've laid out there the, the, the case for change. There's a government commitment, as I mentioned earlier, to deliver a new national policy on philanthropy. What would you like to see? Um, come into to the regulatory piece here on, on this. Yeah, so it's very it's very exciting to be working with government on the development of a new policy. Um, I think there's a couple of things. I think it's very important that government do create frameworks um, that allow people to see themselves as philanthropists and to engage. We would really like to see them um, actively encourage public and private partnerships. Um, 
for example, you know, there's entrepreneurs out there that want to engage in philanthropy. There is next generation. There's a huge amount of intergenerational wealth transfers that uh, is a, is a, the potential for, for giving. Um, place-based giving. We've seen a real um, development where local people are coming together to raise money for local areas. So we've a, a donor who has a fund in Mount Rath. Um, we have one in Tala, Dunleary, Sligo. And it's really interesting to see how philanthropists coming together to see what are the needs of their community and places often connected to where they're living or where they're working. And we believe that government could um, give an initiative of match funding or seed funding to set those county funds up. And that would be a fantastic way of encouraging um, philanthropy legacies, people who don't necessarily have huge wealth now, but may have, um, again, wanting to give back to their community or to an issue. Mm. Um, and again, government could encourage that. So there's a huge amount the government can do uh, where there's common policy areas. You know, I, there's just so many examples. So it's very exciting that they are developing a policy. And certainly for us, the Community Foundation for Ireland, like we're really delighted. We've 21, 22 years experience. We bring that plus the 100 funds, the donors that we're working with and all those groups on the ground. So we're really looking forward to adding that experience to the development of the policy. Yeah. Do you think that the um, the climate is there now, I suppose, to develop a more altruistic um framework for for us as a society going forward do you think that there's that appetite uh to create more of this type of philanthropy i really hope so um i mean we've seen it over the last while you know we've seen society i'll give an example you know everybody is i suppose reeling from the tragic murder of ashton murphy um and the outpouring of kind of collective grief and anger around that um where philanthropy there i think philanthropists have have done the journey in that over gender-based violence for many years but one of our donors is funding the research on consent and hopes to fund the national conversation others set up the first refuge in in West Cork others are coming forward and saying they'd like to work with young men so you really see where there's a kind of national moment where then philanthropists are saying how can I help and I suppose what we'd be saying as well, you have to listen to the groups on the ground where where that money can make a difference. So I think where there are inequalities um, and they've been, as I said, exasperated um, or exaggerated, there's a real desire to try and counter that. And just we've spoken about where you funnel the money towards and how you help companies to do that. But let's talk a bit about how the money comes in, because it's not just big corporates, is it? You have obviously big donors as well. What is the profile of someone like that typically like in Ireland? Yeah, so we have 100 funds and we say they're major and minor. Um, So, for example, we've one family that set up a small fund, uh, a legacy from their father, and they want to do something on an all-island basis. Um, We have another uh, family, a lot of flowers, funds named after flowers. We have a family um, of sisters who really want to make a difference in terms of uh, women's issues. Um, we have uh, another entrepreneur who sold a business and gave money for the first refuge in West Cork. So we have um, we have donors that are worth millions and we have donors that are, are worth less than that. Um, we've corporates, we've trust and foundations. So, you know, I think philanthropy in Ireland is very diverse. Um, and there's lots of, as I say, different profiles of people giving. But I think what's fantastic is to see that from women philanthropists, entrepreneurs, families, 
trust and foundations and corporates. It's really great to see that diversity of giving. And I suppose we're just delighted that we have the mechanisms to support it. Well, Denise, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and to talk to us today. That's Denise Charlton, Chief Executive of the Community Foundation of Ireland. Thank you very much. I'm joined now by Rosemary O'Leary, who's Head of Counterparty Risk at Avalon. Rosemary, thanks very much for joining us today. Not at all, Mandy. Delighted to be here. Now, we've been hearing all week uh, about a lot of activity in the aviation sector in Ireland. But can you just start off by uh, talking to us a little bit about the aviation industry where it stopped in January 2020, say? Sure. So January 2020 in in Europe, we were still in a good place. You know, there were record passenger numbers and healthy profits. The start is the sort of semblance of trouble in APAC, all right. Um, But this change rolled forward two months to here. And we remember it uh, so clearly the day the schools closed. Everything changed overnight. So what we faced were planes being grounded, bookings cancelled and airlines, along with all other hospitality businesses, looking to government to support staff. Um, I remember at the time our uh, CEO, Donald Slattery, told us there aren't going to be any winners, just survivors through a crisis like this. It really was unprecedented how quickly it changed. Yeah, and it really was about surviving, wasn't it? Because um, the scale of transformation in the industry overnight was extraordinary. But can you just give us a a sort of an idea of the scale of leasing, say, in 2019 and what it might have looked like then and what it looks like now? Sure. In 2019, approximately, say, 40% of the world's fleet was leased. Um, and now that's actually increasing. It's it's going to pass surpass 50% this year. Um, and the reason for that is, you know, all of the lessors headed into the pandemic with a very strong balance sheet position. So if I take Avalon as an example, you know, given our investment grade rating, we had to have a very strong balance sheet with, with lots of liquidity and low leverage. And that really has served us very well. Um, And that's the same for the other top lessors uh, based here in Ireland. You know, they headed into the pandemic with similarly strong balance sheets. um, And this has enabled us to support the airline industry, support the airlines. um, And they're now turning to uh, they have continued to turn to lessors during the pandemic to um, increase um, increase the number of leased rather than owned aircraft. So we were fortunate, you know, we were ready to withstand such a crisis. Could you talk to us about the um, various parts uh, within the industry and how they've survived over the past two years? Sure. Well, I've already touched on lessors. So, you know, I suppose our primary concern was supporting our customers. It was such a devastating time for the airlines and the airlines were, you know, having very tough conversations with all of their stakeholders, uh, including lessors looking for support. They were uh, turning to government, their lenders, and it was really very most difficult on the airlines, I would say. Um, next, if I touch on the manufacturers, look at Boeing and Airbus, uh, they had to defer their their pipeline for deliveries. So they reduced their production as a result down to minimal levels, which in turn had a knock on impact on their suppliers. Mm-hmm. So all of the component manufacturers were equally um, impacted. And then finally, for consumers, I suppose, were faced with trying to cancel their bookings, trying to cancel flights and, you know, isolated uh, for the most part from family and friends. Um, But 
you know, hopefully we're seeing a, a change in that now as we have done throughout the, the second half of last year. And in 2021, things started to pick up a little bit, didn't they? Um, can you talk to us about the American recovery and how uh, Europe has fared? Sure. So one thing we noticed early on in 2021 was that domestic recovery was the start, the starting place. So people were uh, consume, uh, you know, uh, travelers were happy to travel domestically. They weren't facing cross-border restrictions or um, uh, vaccination uh, certificate issues. And, and really, as the vaccinations rolled out globally, you could see the improvement in domestic travel numbers um, with uh, inter-regional travel, specifically in Europe, really, really picking up mm. uh, during the summer. So, you know, kudos to the European Commission, but the digital certificate, um, which they rolled out in July, was an enormous success and really supported the industry here in Europe uh, for, for the, the peak summer season. And it really did affect public confidence, didn't it? Give the public the, the sort of confidence to get back in the air, to travel beyond their own borders again. I think it absolutely did. And I know from my own experience, uh, we bravely took the plunge as a family, <laughs> three kids in tow last summer. And, you know, that first trip was really um, the, the changing point. You see that actually this is, you know, you remember why you like to travel, why mm -hmm. you love to travel. And really, it wasn't as difficult as it sounded once you uh, took the plunge and got out there. The digital certificates worked seamlessly from my perspective. Um, and I think we'll see more and more people taking to the air this year. It's really the industry mindset has totally moved now from crisis to recovery. And that's the industry's mindset. But passengers, are people actually following suit? Uh, are they beginning to travel again for business or leisure? Do you have any indications that that might increase as the restrictions dissipate over the next coming weeks here in Ireland? They will, Mandy. Um, what we're actually seeing is, you know, a, a significant surge in demand. And two examples I'll give you of that are when uh, the US opened for European travellers in Q4 last year, there was significant demand and um, uh, transatlantic travel immediately. It literally snapped back immediately. And the other example I give you is uh, recently when, say, the UK and Ireland removed restrictions on testing for returning travellers the bookings literally increased overnight again for summer, for even for Easter holidays, you know, for people looking for sun holidays. So pent up demand is global. It's definitely leisure first. Um, but we will we do expect to see business to follow, um, you know, certainly from Avalon's perspective, we've been out now visiting our customers again through uh, Q4 last year and where we can, obviously, where restrictions permit. Um, and again, it's that reminder of how impactful face-to-face -face time is. Uh, and we, we're seeing increased bookings in terms of from an event management perspective this year. So hopefully that'll uh, encourage corporate travel again to this uh, towards the second half, especially of 2022. And um, travel companies, they're out there buying the sun holidays again, aren't they? They definitely are. And um, we've definitely I've, I've booked my summer holidays. I hope you have for, for this summer. But uh, again, we're seeing, you know, destinations, sun holiday destinations prove really popular, um, especially from European locations and cold weather uh, countries. Now, the talk of aviation's environmental challenges have been um around us for quite some time now, but it's shifted towards sort of solutions and trying to look to the industry to come up with ways to decarbonize its own fleet. Can you just talk to us about what you think might be happening in that space? I think 
the industry at large has plotted its path to 2050 in sort of five-year increments. Um, but that's a very broad plot at the moment. You know, there are definite patterns in terms of sustainable aviation fuel will be important because it's so much uh, less um uh, it's so much lower in carbon emissions than traditional jet fuel. Hydrogen will also form a part of the solution, but those are sort of in early stage uh, rollout at the moment because um, the technology just isn't there to develop them at scale or um, you know at a price point that really is is manageable for the industry. Um, but we are seeing what we are seeing is new technology, though, on the electric aircraft space, and that is going to come to market in nearer term. Um, we're very excited by that here at Avalon. Um, we have ordered we're the first lessor to have ordered electric vertical and takeoff landing aircraft from a company called Vertical Aerospace. Um, and those are actually going to be ready for commercial use by 2025. They're in the, the UK, is it, Rosemary? They're operating out of the UK? That's right. They're Bristol based. Yeah. Could you tell uh, us a little bit more about them? Um, they have been developing the aircraft for around 10 to 12 years already. Um, and they're uh, the it, it, as I said, it's the aircraft we've ordered is called VX4. It's, expe it's expected to come into commercial use by 2025. But the uh, impact on uh, our, our conversations with our customers is actually amazing so we've ordered 500 and 350 have already been or uh, been ordered from us um, from airlines ranging from brazil to japan so microsoft uh, rolls royce and honeywell are also early investors in vertical aerospace and uh, we're partnering with um uh, airlines that have also ordered from them, uh, including American Airlines and Virgin Atlantic. So you've major players here lending their expertise to this new technology. Um, and we expect this pattern to continue across all of the new technology that will be required to innovate these solutions and bring about decarbonisation for the industry. But in terms of cost and scale, we're not really at a point where um, it's viable for ordinary flights or um, you know, the, the normal flight we would take on our summer holidays, for example? Yeah, well, actually, uh, it's interesting because the um, the price point or the target price point for an eVTOL flight would be twice that of an Uber. Mm -hmm. So that's not really unmanageable for most people, given the convenience and the um, and the, the environmental impact that those flights will have. No, and of course, there's a, a greater desire from companies to fulfill their own sustainable targets and consumers themselves want to be more sustainable friendly even if it is uh, at the cost maybe of foregoing a holiday that they might have taken two or three times uh, before the pandemic do you see that the shift in any kind of change behavior might affect the industry so I definitely think um, there's a responsibility right throughout the industry to come up and provide solutions. Um, I note that, uh, you know, one of our partner airlines in the US, JetBlue, came out this week mm -hmm. with um, a business uh, for their business customers, a plan where businesses can purchase basically offsets from them uh, and use those towards their own sustainability commitment. So that's an interesting way of looking at it. It's almost like a look through mm -hmm. where, you know, if you travel for business, um, you pay extra, obviously, but you can then purchase offsets which you can put towards your own sustainability targets uh, as a business. And I imagine, you know, that will start with uh, business travel, but then um, 
will will also become available for consumers. So as an industry, um, this has been very obviously significantly affected. But just could you give us a scale of how many jobs might have been lost in this industry during the pandemic? Thousands. It's it's you know, it's it, this has formed part of all those conversations I mentioned earlier that were so difficult with the airlines. It was really difficult. Um, and in fact, this is what's causing some of the operational challenges now that the airlines are facing getting back uh, in the sky because, you know, they furloughed so many staff and let go so many staff that they're the, the sector as a whole became unattractive to, to new entrants or, you know, new employees. So um, and it, when we take into account the thousands that lost their jobs in supply chains and from tourism, it's really had an enormous impact on globally. Yeah, I also read, uh, Rosemary, that uh, debt management was a significant issue for the, the industry in the short to medium term. Absolutely, Mandy. So the airlines have taken on enormous amounts of um, uh, additional debt just to survive, as we said earlier. And, and this is going to be their challenge now as they uh, as they um, pers- uh, proceed through the recovery. You know, as the revenues recover, they have a huge amount of debt to service. Um, so in terms of uh returning to profitability that's going to be challenging especially with fuel costs the way they are and everything else um so this is sort of increasing the demand for lessor uh aircraft to be honest with you because they really uh will look to us to finance their their fleet um any available revenue and uh liquidity they have will be used to to service their debt and uh, and get back to profitability Okay, with some fascinating insights into what might happen uh, in the aviation sector ahead for us. We'll have to leave it there for now, though. That's Rosemary O'Leary, Head of Counterparty Risk at Avalon. Thanks so much, Mandy. It's been a pleasure to be here. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We have a bit more time in the podcast, so there are extended conversations with our guests today. My thanks to the guests and to the team of Simon Keane and Mick McCarthy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day.